I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life. My guest this morning is Saskia Vogel. She's here with her first novel, Permission, published by Coach House Press. Last night, she gave a talk here at Books and Books in our Carl Gable store. And this morning, we're right back here talking to her in the cafe at Books and Books. So you might hear a little ancillary noise from uh, the rattling of coffee cups or people wandering in. Uh, and I'm sitting across from Saskia, who's got her... What are you drinking? Oh, I'm drinking a café con leche. A café con leche, because how many times have you been to Miami? Uh, zero. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first time. Beautiful. How is the Café Con Leche? It's perfect. Great. Yeah. And Saskia has been uh, on tour from Berlin, where she lives with her husband, David. Uh, and I thought that what we would do this morning is really just get to know one another in a, uh, in a way that I really would like to, given the fact that, you know, I read your book last night. It's a remarkable book after um, hearing you talk about it yesterday. And you have, I think one of the more unusual backgrounds of anybody that I've met who's been in publishing. Really? Given the broad, the broadness of your experience. I suppose so. Well, thank you for having me. And also thank you for spending last night with my book and not going to Gallery Weekend or Gallery Friday. Which gallery was Night. Gallery yeah. Night, yeah. Because the street life was really well, exciting. Well, it was such a provocative talk that we had yeah. last night. How did you feel about it? Really good. Really, really good. I mean... Every every place I've been to with this book, there's been a different kind of conversation that happens, which is, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's kind of the best thing. You know, it's no fun running around just telling people about your book. The nice thing is like seeing what people have to say and what comes up for different people and how and how people read it. You now, know? what's what's really uh, interesting for you, uh, the way you view these, not only the events but your travels, is that you had worked with Granta, mm -hmm. correct? Exactly. And talk about your position at Granta. Um, so I came on board, I think, around 2010, uh, shortly after they launched their sex issue. And um, John Freeman had this sort of vision of creating this beautiful sort of international sort of network of Granta readers. So my job as a publicist was just very much in brief to build community um, wherever we had a sort of density of sub subscribers or places where we felt, I don't know, Granta would have a really, no could find a really nice community. So it was, you know, sure it was PR and trying to get the journal uh, review, uh, reviewed, but also um, it was about bringing people together in rooms and making the magazine feel accessible to people. Because I think sometimes, sometimes people can feel that literature is not for them or something as like hallowed as, and revered as Granta can be really intimidating. So it was kind of my job to like make people feel really welcome. Yeah. Talk a bit about the history of Granta for those who might not know it. Oh, so Granta is one of the UK's uh, 
the, the UK's most revered literary journal. It's quarterly, and I think it really made its mark for um, spotting talent early on. They've published, uh, they were the first place to publish Salman Rushdie. And then I guess they're best known perhaps for their best of young lists. Right. Um, and I had the like real pleasure of working on best of young Spanish language novelists and best of young Brazilian novelists. So it was also very much about like introducing new voices to the world. Do you remember the very first, I think one of the first best of young included Ian McEwen yeah. and Julian Barnes and maybe Salman as well. I, I think don't so. Know. Um, so it goes back a long way. It really, really does. I mean, and it's it was it was incredible to it was a really incredible to work there. I feel like sometimes I think of it as like finishing school for my writing because um, I, I did do a sort of a profession, the professional writing program at USC, which no longer exists, which was kind of an interdisciplinary creative, but also as a writer, you're going to need to write in a lot of different ways. So, you know, I did a grant writing class and um, things like that. Um, so, but so the journey before Granta, um, where were you born? I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. I went to high school in Sweden, except for my sophomore year of high school, because I really wanted to know what American high school was like. And so let's talk about the Swedish connection. Yeah. So where did that come from? My mother is from Vienna, Austria. And at 18, she, I don't know, had a taste for adventure and became an au pair in Sweden and had a first marriage in Sweden with a Swedish man Technically, he was German, but he had moved over like after a, the war. He was yeah. a Swedish citizen. Yeah, and um, he was an actor in Sweden. And um, I, she loved it, became a citizen, and eventually they split up. She met my dad, and then... And your dad is from the United States? Yeah, my dad's from um, Minnesota. So, uh, and what was he doing in Sweden at the time? He, so my mother had split up with her first husband and was living with... Um, was living with. No, she was just working in Holland. And they met on a business, at a business dinner. Uh. And it was a bit of a, as far as I understand, it was a bit of a whirlwind romance. And quite soon thereafter, she was living in Los Angeles and had me. And <laughs> um, yeah, that was that. Yeah, the, the randomness of life. It's pretty good, right? And then it got you right here to have a cafe con leche with us <laughs> in Carl Gables, Florida. Direct line. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny that, right? I think she really gave me my like sense of um, sense of adventure, I suppose. Like I've moved around quite a lot. So you lived in Los Angeles with your mother who's Swedish and your father who's from Minnesota. Yeah. And but you she never lost her Swedish background in a sense. Did she teach you Swedish? No, I mean I was up? raised speaking German and English. German and English. Yeah. And Swedish was sort of a, a side thing. Like of course we'd always when we'd go to Europe and we'd go back to Sweden and visit her friends there, but um only when um my parents thought it would be great to do like a year abroad in Sweden. Um, because why not? Me and my sister could learn a second language, like have a, a sort of intimate experience with a new culture um yeah that's when i suddenly suddenly found myself learning swedish in a high intensity way because um i wanted to keep up my my grades <laughs> you know like i was not a person who was going to let my gpa slip um just because i couldn't speak a language yeah now you say you traveled a lot but did you literally grow up in southern california yeah. did you, you didn't move from there no so. no no i mean yeah i grew up uh in an area very much like and based on the landscape um, of, the of the novel, book. yeah, with coastal suburb, coastal suburb of, of I, Los Angeles. I came back to San Pedro a few years ago, and a whole chunk of cliff had slid. Fallen. Yeah, so now yeah. there's no longer a through road along the coast. You know, oh, is like that it's right? yeah, the the, wow. the crumbling is real. <laughs> and um, the reason why I asked about a lot of the Swedish background is because you went on to become a translator as well. Yes, you yeah. You translated Swedish uh, poetry um, as well as other... Yeah, poems. I mean, I did my first poetry translation um, for that came out, just an excerpt of something came out in a Words Without Borders feature that I did and um, that I curated in March this year. Um, mostly I seem to translate sort of really strong sort of female slash feminist uh, voices coming from Sweden. Like Lena Wolf, um, whose book I think is out just now. I think it came out yesterday or two days ago, officially in the States, um, The Polyglot Lovers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's 
that was the first she was the first author I ever translated so that's wow. like a to have that book come out at the same time as my book in the states has I don't know there's something that feels really special about which that which publisher is it that it's brought it up and other stories uh-huh. yeah so I'm really interested in connections and journeys and yeah. that sort of thing so your journey from a high school student in uh, Southern California took you to USC or UCLA um, or did so you go to college in Southern California as well? So I graduated high school in Sweden. Um, I ended up finishing up high school out there and I remember getting into U- UC Irvine which had been like my dream university and I had this panic where I just thought, oh no, if I move back to California now, I know exactly what my life is going to look like. Where were you living at the time? I was I was working for Mattel in their uh, Amstelveen offices outside of Amsterdam. Out of high school? Yeah, my, my stepmother, um, I, I took a year off and my stepmother helped me get an internship at, the, at that company where she was working. Is your father's my father's ex-wife? current wife. Oh, your father, so your mother and father divorced? Yeah. That's um, how, that's know, how I, I'm we're sorry. We're going to get to the bottom of I everything. Have, I haven't, yeah, it's a, it's a tangled ball of string, um, my background. But yeah, no, it was, we sort of did the year abroad, gotcha. came back to California, my parents split up, we moved back to gotcha. Sweden. Um, and then I took this year off, kind of because I, I was in a panic. I didn't think I had anything to offer. Which is a very smart thing to do. <laughs> no, I think, I think right after high school, it's a really smart thing to take a year off, actually. I think it's great. Now, then I was filled with so much anxiety because I just didn't understand what I was going to do. And so my stepmother, she gave me this great advice, which was, if you don't know what to do, just do something. And I was like, but I really don't know what to do. She was like, fine, you always liked art. So I, so, and you love Barbie. You loved Barbie as a child. So like. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. You always loved art and you love Barbie. (laughs) That's a wonderful connection. It was such a Barbie kid. Well, so I ended up working in the design center in Mattel, like mixing colors and like painting Barbie faces. And like, I I sculpted the fur of a like Wizard of Oz Toto that actually made it into production. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, And then my stepmother was like, great, you've learned how toys are made. Um, now I really want you to come to my side of the business, which is um, international trade and like tax stuff. And so I ended up in um, Amsterdam at 18 with this like corporate job. They needed a, someone to fill in um, in one of the sort of like entry level positions and or assistant positions. And God, I was allergic to that yeah. job and life. And I got this acceptance letter to UC Irvine and I just had this panic and thought if I go back now, I, yeah, I know exactly what my life is going to be. So I quickly applied to university in the UK because I was like, that's where the books live, was basically my decision. That's where you they also, speak. <laughs> you also had a taste of European life. Which it's true. clearly is something that you love. Yeah, I, I wasn't ready to stop sort of, I guess, moving around and adventuring, I suppose. Um, and, and it was exactly that. Like, I, I didn't, I didn't want to go back to the States. I wanted to study in English. I wanted to study English literature, also film, because I wasn't quite sure. And um, yeah, I just, I found a university in West London um, called Brunel, who's known better for, I think, like Olympic athletes and engineering. <laughs> but they had a really provocative, like, film department with, like, uh, modules on, like, horror film and body genres oh, wow. and, like, a really interesting post-colonial studies um, prof- uh, uh, classes and stuff like that. So I... I just was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And went to university kind of non-committally. I thought I was going to like go back to California after the first year or transfer, but I just really loved London. So yeah. let's, so you went to university in London and this was, I guess, in the, in the two, early two, 2000s. 2000 to 2003. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your, your evolution as a, as a feminist, as a thinker, as someone who got involved in very particular kinds of thought. Mm. And where did that come from, do you think? Was it something that, that bubbled up from you when you were little, that you, you knew that you were on this sort of alt, uh, parallel path in the way you were thinking about the world? I mean, my parents, 
my my dad's the guy when you walk through a city he's always like look up and then he will like look at the architecture and kind of break it down and break down the influences and stuff he's he's in the fresh fruit and vegetable business but my family and my mother used to be in shipping um but my mother's an incredible reader and you know they 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 both really appreciate culture. So like I was the kid who I think in third grade um, was obsessed with uh, the three graces, and um, I think we had gone on a family trip to the Hearst Castle, and I like picked up like a mini three graces statue, and I brought it into show and tell, which caused like a scandal at the school because of boobies. <laughs> you know, suddenly there were six breasts in the classroom, and nobody could handle it. And um, I mean, I don't know. I suppose I've always really connected to a certain kind of like sensualism. I, I don't know, the, the sort of beauty of art. And, and you start with the Camille Paglia quote. Yeah. And is that, and you know, that quote was, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was probably before you were born or around the time you were born. I think it's The quote's from 1992. Oh, yeah, I was like at least 11. <laughs> you were 11. Well, yeah. <laughs> as I get older, age becomes, I'm a little like Billy Pilgrim. I don't know how old anyone is at any time. But, but so that quote was in 1992. And why don't you talk about that quote? And does that, is that something that, informed your life growing up as well? Well, so my mother um, went to go get her bachelor's degree, um, I think around when I was like 11 or 12. I'm really shaky when it comes to timelines, but I was I was a kid, but an older kid. And so I remember, um, and I was really obsessed with Madonna. And so my mom, I don't know, I'm assuming it was through university that she had like encountered Camille Paglia and so she was like here read this book she, you know, she has an essay in here about Madonna and it was kind of a point of contention because I mean M Madonna was Madonna in the 80s right. and I was her you know and I was I mean ever since I was like a tiny child like when I, I was like dancing to like a virgin and you know and so I encountered Camille Paglia that way at I guess kind of a youngish age um, and then when I felt really stuck in my book I went back to Paglia thinking okay what was it that I connected with there and um, in Vamps and Tramps, there's uh, an, a sort of essay about Andrea, sort of about the anti-pornography movement. But it starts with this beautiful kind of lyrical paragraph that goes um, something like, I'm a pornographer. Ever since childhood, I've seen sex suffusing the world. And she talks about connecting to the sort of sensualness uh and the sort of erotic energy of, you know, religious art or art in general or the carnal en energies of the world. And that, um, like Madonna, like she is going to stick to this pagan vision. She's not going to disconnect, even though right. society, church, parents are kind of saying, no, 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 don't pay attention to that. That's, that's something you shove to the side. And that kind of gave me um, Echo, my main character, in a way. She also wants to stick to her pagan vision, but she's struggling with society being like, no, that, that belongs in certain boxes and covered in shame. Is that how you remember yourself as a kid growing up as I well? I think so, yeah. 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 Well, the Madonna, you know, I, I, as an adult, lived through the whole Madonna period. And Madonna actually lived in Miami for a while, as you might know. Oh, yeah. Do you know that book that she did? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the actual book. Boy, do I have that book. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny. Uh, just as a aside, it was called Sex. Mm -hmm. and, and that book was so, it was earth shattering when yeah. it came out. And it was the kind of thing... <laughs> I mean, you think about how we've how we've moved as a culture. It was a kind of thing. About half of the photographs were taken in Miami Beach oh, yeah. or on Miami Beach, and it was the kind of thing that, if you had the book, you know, they wrapped it in plastic. It was it was um, like a, a metallic. It was a metallic like baggie, cover. And, and then it's a metal cover. And a metal yeah. cover, and for a while you couldn't get it, and we would have it. And, you oh. know, I mean, we sold lots of them when they finally were available. But we had a copy of people who just come in wanting to see it. So we had to keep it behind the register. And we allowed people to come in and they would have like their five minutes with the book. <laughs> it was a very unusual, different time. And it's hard, I think, for someone coming of age today or, or being of age or writing to understand just how we've moved so far beautifully into the future. Totally. I mean, we have Rihanna. We've got, you know, bondage wear as everyday wear. Yeah. No big deal. Um, no, sheer clothing. Completely. That's that's totally fine. 
Yeah, I, I have a Japanese edition of sex that I bought at a sex shop in London because I walked in, I saw that they had it behind the counter and I was like, I don't care that I'm a student. I am buying this book because <laughs> of course, of course, of all the things that my parents indulged, they did not indulge buying a book called Sex for their like 12 year old <laughs> or 11 year old daughter. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's interesting talking to you because it's interesting talking to you about the effect of what that book had on a 12 year old or an 11 year old. Really, really interesting. Well, just but also like the freedom that it showed in that book and mm. giving voice to people who who were thinking things that were mm. different than what our standard you know our overarching culture was thinking well, it's just I guess also like just the the, sh- the shameless focus on pleasure and sort of the enjoyment of bodies and that right. sort of men women doesn't matter there were these there was sort of a I don't know I feel like those pictures exist of course you know, gender always comes into things, but I feel like it's so much more about bodies and sensualism than it is about necessarily men or women, even though ideas of femininity and masculinity are definitely played within the book, you know. Um, well, you know, a lot of that discussion was happening around that time. I remember, a re- I don't know if you know the book or if you have it. It just came to me as we're talking about it. Do you remember there was a book and it, it really stirred so much conversation? It was called Caught Looking. Mm-mm. Oh, I, I, don't have know to, I have to find you that book. And yeah. it was the very first book, and it was a very small press, and it was just a series of images. Because remember, this is before the internet. Right, right. This is before computers. And it was about images, erotic images. And it was just a whole group, and it was men, women, it didn't, weren't really sure what it was. It was, I guess it was a little voyeuristic as well. Mm-hmm. It was a discussion of voyeurism and that sort of thing. But that was another book that just exploded. And you had at the time, you actually did have that that tension between Camille Paglia, Andrea Dworkin, mm. the, you know, people who were trying to explore their sexuality a little bit more and differently. Yeah. And that was such a, a moment in time. And you were 11. <laughs> and, and that was happening. Yeah. You know, so it... It's a ve- you know to me it's historically very interesting. As yeah, well. yeah. I wonder. I wonder. I, I mean, I think about Madonna a lot, and she comes up in the book a couple times because I mean she was just so influential. Like having you know, and I think she was controversial in like my home, I suppose, because I think of course my parents were just people also trying to make sense of what this person was doing right. and what she was sort of what she stood for, and I mean, like. remember how she just kind of continued exploding in these different ways and you know we hadn't really seen that before I mean Bowie no sure well they yeah Um, I mean Bowie certainly was that but but the but then but the but the international conversation didn't mm. really surround Bowie in the very same way all of a sudden all of this conversation bubbled up into the mainstream Mm. and also the mainstreaming of like BDSM imagery which um I don't know, like even then I just found so tantalizing, like I, and I don't know what it was that I connected to, like maybe it's on a symbolic level, maybe it's because I grew up riding horses and I really like leather, like who, who knows what it is, but there was just something, there was something in kind of the, I don't know, sort of archetypal heart of well, those pictures. Well, obviously, so you, you had this really interesting cultural um, awakening, uh, whether it's through your parents, whether it's through popular culture, but culturally. And then at the same time, you were pursuing your craft of, of being a writer, mm. potentially a filmmaker. So what led you to what I, th- when I said earlier, by the way of introduction, that you have a very unusual background, is that um, there aren't very many writers that I have met who have gone into becoming a serious writer from adult video, adult video <laughs> news, AVN. So, what led you? How did how did you go through that door? What led you through that door? Um, so, I I really thought that I was going to write the updated version of Gay Talisa's Thy Neighbor's Wife when I was at USC doing this writing program. I had moved back to LA from London and um, met a just a really lovely very harmonious group of people in the sort of kink community in Los Angeles. And there was also like a really big party scene at the time, both private parties. We're talking but also in the 90s? No, like 2000 or 2004, oh, I think 2004. I moved back to L.A. So it was after, after you were in university. Yeah, four, five, six, seven, yeah. those years. Um, 
And, you know, nightclubs were having sort of more sort of like mainstream sort of fetish-based dance parties and that were quite edgy. There was a nightclub promoter called James Stone um, who was kind of behind a lot of the... In Los Angeles. Yeah, behind a lot of the... Because you associate a lot of it with San Francisco and you don't really think of the Los Angeles thing that might have been happening. I mean, I mean, when I was in... Dallas. I walked into a store called Leather Masters, and suddenly I was go. like, "Oh, there's the there's the community here." <laughs> so it's happening like, there's every, everywhere. It's happening everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh right. So I started interviewing my friends essentially because I, I was like 23 when I moved um, back to LA, and um, I was it was the first time I think I had seen people like living very non heteronormative relationships and structuring their life around their sexual identities. Not everyone, but um, some. And it just really made a huge impression on me. But I, I think then I just didn't have it. I didn't have. I didn't know what to do with an essay. I didn't know what to do with the material. Um, but uh, and I and I was obsessed with magazines. I love magazines. And um, I kept trying to get a job at a publication in L.A. and it wasn't working out. And then one day, one of my friends from the community, who was working at um, uh, one of the magazines in the AVN Media Network that has now since folded. Um, she was like, there's a maternity cover position coming up. You've always wanted to be a managing editor. You have the relevant experience. Let me put you forward for the job. And I think they wanted to have me because, I mean, I, I feel like I remember. They asked me something like, does, does anything, it was something about, like, I can't remember the question anymore. Does anything, like, not bother you, but, you know what I mean, like, offend you or something. And I'm like, oh, no, nothing offends me. And I think they really liked that I had just spent, you know, two years digging deep in this in this community. And I think they knew that I, you know, wasn't going to have a problem working with porn. Right. And, you know, it's just like the bookseller or Publishers Weekly, but for pornography. Um, and I just thought it would be a really... Let's say that again. Well, it was like the the Publishers Weekly for pornography. I, I, I love it. <laughs> that is incredible. I think they should use that as their tagline in some way. Yeah, instead of the most respectable name in the least respected industry, I right. think that's their official tag name. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think I was I was like, okay, I don't really watch much porn. What I've seen is like something that I've sneakily right. watched online at some point. Um, and there wasn't a lot of online at that point. No, and it was, and I, I didn't know how to block pop-up ads and stuff. I right. mean, remember this was like after the pop-up ad arrived and destroyed everything or made interneting a, a much more annoying experience. And I, I just thought, this is going to be really important for my feminism. I mean, that was a very clear and distinct thought I had. Because right. I'm like, people talk about porn all the time, but what is it actually? What is this business? What's actually going on here? Right. And so I kind of was just up for it. And um, it's it was it was really formative. Um, well, they were lucky to have you. I mean, in the sense that you were a serious writer, a serious thinker, and uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I was as serious or as good at writing then. Like, I look at my old articles, and I'm like, oh, Saskia, you are still cutting your teeth. <laughs> you know, well, maybe there'll be an anthology of those at some point. <laughs> anthology, yeah, <laughs> my sexy greeting card features and um, sexy super sexy Halloween costume trend reports. And so when did you then, yeah. so then, but you were obviously still very involved in kind of more literary culture because, you know, you then took the position at Granta. Yeah. Or did you get hired by John to do the the sex issue of Granta? No, that's how we met. Um, you I were was, working on it. I, I was doing social media for Coco de Mer, which um, is a really beautiful uh, sex shop that was started by Samantha Roddick, the daughter of the woman who founded the body shop. Right. And she's very, she's, she's an activist first and like, she's an incredible activist in the UK and she wanted to sort of push the conversation around sex further. And it also turned into a boutique with high ends. Anyway, Granta was hosting the launch of the sex issue there. And, um, I had been told by a recruiter sort of shortly I had been told by a recruiter that with my job history in porn, I was never going to find a job in literary publishing because nobody would want to work Boy, with me. They were wrong, right? They, they, they were wrong, and I like to think that maybe I just spoke to the wrong person that day. But, I mean, when you're looking for a job in an expensive city like Scary. London, it's a terrifying thing to hear. Right. Um, also, you don't want to believe that the porn stigma is real or that it extends to having, like, 
I was a managing editor of a magazine. I was then a senior writer for their like novelty magazine. Right. Like I have I have skills, right. you know. Put me in at any one of the largest industries around. Yeah. I mean I could go I could have gone to any trade publication. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so but you know, I I the people at Coco de Mayo were like, You you're literary, you like stuff. Why don't you go to this party? And um, I went with my husband because Granta was his favorite magazine and I wanted to charm him. Um, and, you know, this was like maybe in the first couple of years of our relationship. And, um, and where were you living at that time? We were living in Golders Green in London. In London. Yeah. And so we went and I remember having this sort of moment where I went, oh my gosh, this is the moment where I get to meet people in the industry that I want to be in and I actually have something to do here. And so... I'm going to meet everybody and then we're just going to see what, see what happens. And shortly thereafter, um, David and I were actually sitting in Berlin contemplating moving there in 2010 or so. And, uh, a job came up at Grant and they emailed me about it. They, they wanted a publicist. And I mean, talk about like life changing emails. I remember sitting, I was working for a feminist pornographer who I was helping out a little bit. Um, I think she was trying to organize a shoot in, in Berlin because uh, she was there at the time, and I was just like, "Oh, this might be the moment my life changes," <laughs> you know. And like, kind because I, I really wanted to work with a certain kind of story, and I think each, each like job I've had or whatever has kind of led me closer to the kind of storytelling that I guess we now see in 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 my novel. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know how to get there from the beginning. You have to walk through a bunch of doors, right? Yeah. There's a there's a quote that I often think about and it was in uh, the zoo story by Edward Albee and mm. sometimes you have to go a long way out of your way to come back a short distance the right way yeah yeah and I had to and I think I absolutely had to leave Los Angeles in order to to find that maybe it's something about being outside of a familiar space maybe my instinct in 2000 London is our the books live in London go there you know, um, New York was never a big part of my uh, literary imagination. No, but you had to go through that whole journey yeah. <laughs> to be where you are today. I mean, exactly. I don't think you would change anything of what you've done. I don't you think did. so. Looking, looking back at this point. So right now you're living in, you live in Berlin. Yes. Uh, with your husband David. Yes. And so let's let's now segue into the book, into uh, permission. So. When did that start happening, that you said, I want to write a novel, and I want to create an echo? I mean, so 2004, I wanted to write a novel, but then I found what I thought was going to be, like, the reportage book of the century, um, and uh, and I and so I kind of doubled down on nonfiction. And then that just sat with me the entire time. Um, I never wanted... I always wanted to write a project around whatever it was that had made such a big impression on me in that group of people in that time of my life. And um, I rewrote that book about a hundred different ways, you know. So this, this book? Yeah, like it was nonfiction and then it was essays and then I was trying to find my voice and so I wrote chapters in like a Raymond Chandlery kind <laughs> of voice because so I was... So you were playing with genre. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I didn't know what I wanted the book to be. Like, was it going to be like an intro to BDSM culture? Um, was it going to be a memoir about sexual awakening? And that never was an idea that I w wanted to pursue, really. Um, yeah, I don't know. The sex memoir is, is not my genre. Ironically, even though sort of memoirs about, fictionalized memoirs about um, sex workers definitely are a big influence on like the form of this book. Well, there's a history of that. I mean, I, you know, just as a bookseller over 40 years, I can recall, you know, early on, this is really interesting. I mean, that, it, you just sparked a thought in me. Yeah. When we had our first bookshop, which was on the corner, on Sundays we were closed, but we used to black out the windows and we used to work with a film collective here in Miami. And it was run by a guy named Bruce Weber, not the Bruce Weber. The I was going to say. No, not the, although <laughs> right. he lives in Miami as well. The okay. Not the fashion photographer, but another guy named Bruce Weber, who went on to deal with Harvard in film. But he was, I'm talking like 1983, 84, mm. 85. 
every Sunday we would show work by like Veronica Vera oh, and we would show like uh, Russ Meyer films. Did you ever screen the Licorice Quartet, Radley Metzger's, speaking of voyeurism? You know, maybe. I don't remember. It's one of my favorites. If you haven't seen it recently, what is go it find called? it. The Licorice, the Licorice Quartet? L-I-C-K-E-R-I-S-H. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but, no, but it was really, we, I, we felt like we were doing something really, really different. Yeah. And, um, and Veronica Vera came, and a lot of these very early, early kind of people who were transforming the whole idea of sex work and all of that were coming. And I was a little like Alex in Wonderland. I did, didn't sort of understand everything yeah. that was really happening around me. But I look back at it now when I hear you talk about this, saying, you know, just how out there that was for that time. Yeah. And the audiences were huge. I mean, we used to have lines going out the door. Oh it was a small <laughs> store. But every, it, and I love the fact that it was on Sunday that we were yeah. doing it. Oh my gosh. And we, it was during the day and we would have to literally black out the windows so that you could show film. And it was film. I mean, I think we started flirting with video at some point, but it was mostly film. And, um, and then there were, then there were a number of books that came out kind of around that time. And I'm blanking on the first one but it was uh, a woman who's gone on to write about food and she's gone on mm. to write about all this other stuff but her first thing was writing about uh, about desire in our culture at the time but I, I digress but I, you, you just sparked but that the, memory in me in a very interesting way no but it's it's so uh, I oh god I have a very nostalgic relationship to, to pornography in this way I suppose because moments like that I don't know. It, I, I love I love that you've shared this story. I, I helped put together a pornographic film festival uh, in Helsinki, where we also gather people in a room in a theater and focus only uh, focus primarily on stuff that's shot on film. So we end up um, almost kind of only screening sort of like often like really rare archival prints of sometimes classic, sometimes like very underground porn. Well, and I it's, mean, it's, it's something, yeah. there's something quite special about gathering well, people in a room to watch a sex film. Well, I think that's, you know, it's, but people like you bring it out more and more and more, but it's one of the great, of people of a certain age, it's one of the great unspoken things. Yeah. I mean, everyone has their own relationship with pornography. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, another, another memory, you're sparking all of these memories, bring but <laughs> as a bookseller was we had this a little bookshop in Carl Gables, which is traditionally a very conservative mm. place, had had been a very conservative little suburb of Miami, kind of garden city of, mm -hmm. of Miami. And there's a huge, as you know, Cuban community here. And there was a big one then. We had just, Marielle had just happened, mm -hmm. the Marielle boat lift, which even made the Cuban presence even that greater. But ironically, there were no books on Cuba that you could get. In uh -huh. English, there was very little written about Cuba. I then was looking through a remainder catalog and came across, remainders are sale books for those who, out there who don't know. And I came across this book that was called A Hundred Years of Cuban Erotica. No. And it was a book of photography of old, sepia-toned Cuban pornography because Cuba has its own relationship with pornography. Yeah, yeah. And, and... What was, you know, I brought in 10, those 10 sold out in like two days. I ended up selling literally thousands <laughs> of that book, uh, pre-internet, pre-anything else, to some of the, and I would always, I mean, some of the most conservative people, to people who are just gathering things. And so this idea of, I mean, I, I think for someone who didn't grow up at a time when there wasn't such easy access, mm. it must seem a little strange hearing about this, but... That became, I, that became, for me, a kind of emblematic book of this whole hidden culture yeah. that was just completely around us. And I actually don't have, I've, I've thought, you know, it makes me realize I'm going to go online and try to find a copy of that again because it's out of print now and you yeah. can't really get it. But I should have saved a copy, I think. Oh, gosh. Some of those, like, out-of-print books... Um are so devastating. Like there's a Sus Susie Randall. Um, she wrote a memoir. I think she and her husband wrote it together. I looked for it online the other day. It's like 500, 600 bucks. And I'm like, I just want to read this book so bad, but I, I that's, that's a little, well, that's a little out of my like research yeah. budget. Or, or, or what's his name? The, the guy who wrote, uh, it was, it was a, 
it was scandalous at the time. The guy who wrote the history of the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. and I'm forgetting his name. My memory is is going. But the guy who wrote the history of the atomic bomb, then wrote a first person account of his own, you know, his own sexual obsessions, huh. like out of the blue. I mean, he was a historian, and they decided to write this first person account, published by Simon and Schuster, and everybody's going, where did that come from? No, so. These were all things when I think historically, you know, as a bookseller, you know, mm. there were all of these moments of change and shift, which I think leads directly to permission in so many ways. And for me, it's so liberating to see how easy, in the talk last night, about how easy it was and how natural it was among everybody who came. Yeah. I mean, did you feel that? I felt that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I started, like, working with sort of some sort of text about BDSM in 2004. Richard Rhodes. Richard Rhodes? That was his name. Okay, I'm going to go look that up. You'll have to look that up. Um, But yeah, like in 2004, a lot of the questions I was getting from like the people in my writing group, which were, or in the writing program, which um, it was kind of targeted at professionals. So people were like, it was quite a broad age, age range. I think I was one of the youngest people. You know, it was like, why, what, what is the pleasure in this? Are these people just hurting each other? And I think in the sort of 15 years since I've been working, I guess, or wanting to work around this subject matter, um, the conversations really changed. And it's more nuanced. It's more nuanced. Like I think, thank you, Fifty Shades of Grey, I think, for basically taking care of an entire layer of conversation that I didn't really want to have to deal with. Right, (laughs) right, exactly. And I think we're seeing in, like, a post-Fifty Shades world that that conversation is more nuanced and, like, I'm really happy the way that people seem to be able to like read and talk about the book. Well, the one thing in reading your book that struck me was how gorgeously you write. Thank I you. I mean, you are a remarkable writer. Thank you so much. In terms of no matter what you're writing about. I mean, the opening scene, of, and, I, and it's not a spoiler alert because it happens very quickly, the opening scene of her father dying, mm. it's, it's astonishing. I mean, the way you the way you sort of chart it out and the way you bring it into the reader and how surprising it is. Uh, You write in a lyrical way that is just really, really evocative. And I'm going to read to you what Janet Fitch said. Janet Fitch wrote White Oleander and she was, I think, one of the first Oprah books, if I'm not mistaken. I think so, yeah. You know, I mean, and she's someone that I respect so greatly. Saskia Vogel's provocative debut novel, Permission, is like a trick box. I like that, like a trick box Mm. full of sliding panels. Her protagonist, jarred loose from her life by the accidental death of her father, finds that the boundaries she's always taken as given begin to slide open, revealing secret zones of power and sexuality within the world and within herself. Beautifully written, mysterious and compelling and I couldn't agree more so tell us a little bit about the book and a little bit about Echo so after after Echo's dad dies unexpectedly um, she moves back in with her mother she doesn't have a great relationship with and back into her childhood home um, which is filled with all those childhood demons and then she um, I don't know it's in sort of a haze of grief starts noticing that she has new neighbors the neighbors across the street are not the neighbors that were the neighbors she grew up with. And she spends a lot of time watching the house. I, I thought a lot about like rear window, um, <laughs> actually, when I was when I was oh, that's, that's when I was writing it. Um, and and she finds out that uh, there's a dominatrix who's moving in called Orly, who's setting up her business in this suburban home. Um, and she's subletting one of the rooms to um, one of her oldest clients, but also a friend. So he's, um, he's her renter, but also he's um, her houseboy. And so uh, I suppose I was really interested in writing. I mean, I keep saying I wanted to write the least sensational book about an often sensationalized topic um, possible. And I, I think it's because I was really interested in kind of the mundane or everyday aspects of negotiating kind of that kind of relationship right. so that's a part of the book well, without sensationalizing it, you, yeah you brought it you brought it it became a natural part of the narrative yeah what do you do about the dishes what do you do right. about um echo who gets to know orly and kind of becomes a fixture of the house who's a romantic interest but also working with orly where does that leave piggy and kind of you know 
what what about the dishes or what if what were the boundaries of these relationships and what kind of challenges arise when you're negotiating you know uh desire in a in a in a work context and desire that just you know in the sort of incredibly permeating way that desire perme- permeates our lives like how do you how do you separate these things or do you have to how do you how do we handle and also the question that i like if the camille paglia quote gave me the character of echo the question how do you want to be loved um gave me the book i suppose oh beautifully yeah put. and and i think it's genre defying as well i mean you can't really you can't pigeonhole this into any kind of genre. There's something I always, I always loved about some of the Irish crime stories that I would read. They were novels with murder. It's yeah. the way that I dealt with it. And this is a novel, truly a novel, with BDSM mm. in it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not. It's it 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 is it is by every way that you can imagine as compelling as any other novel would be. Mm. Uh, and what you've done is you've taken it out of the Fifty Shades of Grey and you've made it a kind of a, a literary endeavor in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for saying all those nice things. Well, no, it's actually <laughs> yeah. true. I mean, it's the way that I experienced it. So, so, you know, it's so interesting because you talked about you were trying to figure out all the different ways that you can approach this. Mm. And I think you found the perfect way of approaching it in this. I mean, I'm, I'm really, really happy with it. Like, it is absolutely the best book I could have written when I wrote it. Um, For those of you who can't see it, and anybody who's near a computer, you need to pull up the jacket as well, because I think Coach House has done a remarkable job in publishing it. It's, what a beautiful image. Did you have something to do with choosing the image for it? Yeah, there's this, there's this uh, Instagram account and a group in Berlin called the School of Death that's about sort of reimagining uh, our relationship to death. And they posted this image along with one of their sort of missives around grieving and loss. And um, it's a French uh, collage artist called, called Rosen Legal. And I, and I pulled it and I sent it to um, my editors and was like, this, you know, we were talking about covers and they were asking about reference images, like in, to sort of find a mood, I suppose. And um, the North American publisher, uh, Coach House, and my, my editor, Alana, she, um, she was just like, no, but this is, we can use this image. Let's just see if we can get the rights to it and stuff. So, and then, um, is it Ingrid Paulson? who designed the cover. She also does Tamara Faith Berger's covers. Um, which yes, are, it's Ingrid Pulse. Yeah. So, I mean, that was great. Like, what a, what a nice thing to be, to have, to have been able to have so mo- such a say on the cover. And now um, what must be so cool for you is discovering bookstores that you knew from your position at Granta yeah. as a marketing person there. And now being able to come and go and visit those bookstores as an author. Yeah, I've imagined all of them. And I've emailed with so many booksellers or Christina here. You know, we've been an email. Con- I think we probably hadn't emailed since 2013. But in those years, you know, all the work that I was doing, sending authors around the States and trying to communicate, uh, trying to create this like grant community. And it's just been so wild, you know. And so my husband and I, we decided to do it by train as much as we could sort of time and budgets permitting and um so there's also been this like slow arrival like space to kind of let things sink in and so now we've seen you know so much of the american landscape as well you're taking a road trip of america yeah bookshop by bookshop which is exactly which is exactly my dream (laughs) (laughs) of how to see the world well i realized that basically because of that job i have like my map of the world is essentially indie bookstores (laughs) you know when i think of the states i'm like oh yeah okay then that's the local indie and then you know and that's how i plot is it being published in europe as well yeah it's um it's out in spain uh with the camille paglia quote as its title so una pornografa and um, it's coming out in Swedish under in the ti- titled um, uh, Elskana, The Lovers, which was an alternate title for permission also. So it has this like other lives in other languages. It's also being published in French and Italian. 
Beautiful. I, it's you, really exciting. Are you going to be touring some of those places? I'm as definitely well? going to Sweden. Because you're still living in Berlin yeah. at this point. Yeah. And of course, it's published in the UK um, yeah. by Little Brown. Yeah. Would you do me a favor as we end this interview to read um, from the epigram? Of course. So, I mean, kind of going back to the idea of like the anonymous sex worker memoir or even. Um, Oh, what was I reading recently? F- I think Fanny Hill. There are, there's usually, in, in so many of sort of the great pornographic novels, there's this sort of little caveat in the beginning that gives you essentially permission to read this this smutty, dirty book. And I kind of wanted to write against that, you know, and sometimes it takes the form of a prologue, uh, a fictional letter from a fictional publisher or a fictional doctor telling you, no, no, it's fine, you can read this. <laughs> it's dirty, but it's useful. Um, you know, they often had to do that for legal reasons. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and I and I just I like I liked that idea, but I also wanted to write against that and in a, in a sense like bring that kind of book or that kind of like what would that look like in the 21st century, I suppose. So, I mean, I thought about um K-Rock, which I which had Loveline, you know, the sort of sex and relationship show and um which I used to listen to religiously, like my dad had to string a bunch of cable because we live on the wrong side of a hill to get radio reception from like Los Angeles. We only get like Mexican and San Diego radio stations. <laughs> and um, so I used to listen to it like and uh, like it was my job. And um, but as I got older, it started to bug me a little bit, a sort of blanket approach. And I suppose this is exactly uh, what we're going to be getting in this epilogue. Yeah. So last night. I couldn't sleep, so I went for a drive. I only meant to take a loop around the peninsula, driving up and down the hills, seeing the city to the north, the port to the west, and the Pacific Ocean reaching for the dark horizon. It was just past midnight, so I tuned into a rock station that had a late-night call-in show about sex and relationships. It had been on the air as long as I could remember, since before I'd thought of doing anything more than holding hands. It was the kind of show that made driving bearable. Once you've learned the words to every song on the radio, nothing breaks the boredom of sitting behind the wheel like conversation. Nervous callers made themselves vulnerable to a psychologist who'd heard it all before. He did his best to help, assuring people that they were not alone in fear, confusion, or desire. Whatever it was they wanted, they were allowed, he said, so long as it was safe, sane, and consensual. There was one thing he'd ask that made me bristle. Whenever a girl called in with a problem, he'd start off by asking, where's dad? Where's dad? As if that were the key to it all. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Saskia, thank you. And thank you for being here at Books and Books. And thank you for being on The Literary Life. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor and a pleasure. (laughs) And travel safe through the rest of your journey as well. I shall try. (laughs) 